pienso que es un activo que, que debe de estar en el portafolio de cualquier inversionista. Es un activo que tiene valor, valor internacional, que se cotiza con enorme liquidez a nivel mundial y que por eso debería estar en cualquier portafolio. Punto. Lo finito de Bitcoin, los 21 millones, es la clave de todo el tema. Por eso decía yo lo de Ethereum, ¿no? que mientras no tenga un, una cantidad finita de emisión, yo no, no les creo nada, man. emitir más y se deprecia tu, tu activo. ¿no? Sí. El fiat es un fraude. O sea, mira, yo crecí, empecé mi carrera profesional en el 81. El peso estaba a 20 por 1. Hoy estamos a 20 mil por 1. A mí no me cuenten. Y eso es aquí en México, pero si lo hacemos en Venezuela o en Argentina o en Zimbabue, pse, las cifras pierden toda proporción. ¿no? Entonces, el fraude del fiat es una cosa inherente al sistema fiat. Y lo estamos viendo ahorita suceder en Estados Unidos. La emisión monetaria se fue a la luna, ¿me entiendes? Entonces el dólar como moneda dura pues es un, una broma. Si hoy Ricardo Salinas Pliego viajara 30 años en el futuro y pudiera elegir tres formas de dinero, activos, bienes, ¿qué se llevaría? ¿Oro, plata, bolívares, pesos argentinos, pesos No, 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 no. Ni, nada de fiat apestoso por ningún motivo. Ni un peso, nada. Ni un papel fiat, ni un papel fiat. Sí, definitivamente. No, yo sí me llevaría los bitcoins. Unos bitcoins. Sí. Happy Bitcoin Tuesday, freaks. It's your boy, Matt O'Dell, here for another Disp Citadel Dispatch. Um, I missed you guys last week uh, while I was on vacation. Shout out to the ride or die freaks who took it upon themselves to run a Citadel Dispatch, run a Bitcoin Tuesday unsanctioned um, through Twitter spaces. Um, I know the audio quality on the podcast feed was a little bit under par. Apologies about that. Um, I don't think I'll be leaving you guys anytime soon, but if, if we do do another episode that way, uh, we will try and make sure the audio is better. Um, to our freaks who are joining us through the audio streams, that was Ricardo Salinas in the intro. Yes, he was not speaking English. He was speaking Spanish. Uh, he's a Mexican billionaire, the third richest, including um, a significant shareholder of Banco Azteca, which is... Um, They're all throughout Latin America. They operate all throughout Latin America, Mexico, Panama, Guatemala, Honduras, Peru, El Salvador. And he was just basically talking about how much he loves Bitcoin and how much fiat sucks. Um, completely orange-pilled. Uh, kind of unreal to see still to this day. Shout out to at the Rational Root who got that clip, put it on Twitter, has all the um, subtitles, the translations into English. So if you do want to come in, if you're an audio freak, and you want to come in and see what the subtitles are, you can look at the, the video feed, which you can get at Um 
shout out to real quick shout out you, you can uh freaks have been asking about um the citadel dispatch hats you can get those at citadeldispatch.com slash stack um you can also get uh flasks and magnets courtesy of quinn solo and btc pins two rider die freaks which is pretty cool of them stepping up and offering merch through their uh respective stores uh, if you buy that merch through them um a third of it will go to open sats a third goes to me and a third goes to them which is a pretty cool breakdown so i really appreciate them um this is citadel dispatch the interactive show about bitcoin distributed systems privacy and open source software i'm your host matt odell and I'm joined here today by the Chief Strategy Officer of Human Rights Foundation and a good friend, Alex Gladstein. How's it going, Alex? Great to be here. Great to be back in the Citadel. Yeah, I've been, uh, after 26 weeks in a row, I took my first week off last week. Um, but here we're back with Citadel Dispatch 28, so it is good to be back as well. Um, before we get started, I just want the freaks to know that my vacation has not quite ended yet. So I am in a small inn in rural America. And there was a power outage yesterday that cut the internet for about 10 minutes. Um, so if this stream just fucking dies at some point, we're ripping it live. Uh, that's probably why it happened. Um, and we'll be back up within 10 minutes. That's, that's the plan in effect. And we'll see what happens. Cause I, I don't have any cell reception here, so I can't even switch to, uh, I have two hotspots that I travel with. One is my cell phone and one is a separate dedicated hotspot. And they're both on different networks and neither have reception here. Um, that's a feature, not a bug. Um, so today we're going to be talking about, uh, I just feel like all of a sudden this is becoming the year of nation states and Bitcoin. Um, we have the big news that people have been hearing about is El Salvador. But then recently we have this this Chinese Bitcoin mining ban. Um, and then on top of all of that, Alex wrote a really fantastic piece. He's been working with Bitcoin magazine, releasing pieces every two weeks on the French colonial franc. Um which is something that I just was not on my radar at all. Uh, so I figure we'll, we'll just start with that uh, because, you know, I, it's, it's just a crazy, I can't believe this is still happening right now, Alex. Yeah, and I think the setup here is that the geopolitical era of Bitcoin is really beginning. Um, <clears throat> you know, this open source code experiment that started growing through different kinds of communities on the internet and eventually made its way into the mainstream you know, we've really taken a turn for for the geopolitical level here, which is which is really amazing to see. And and I think even before El Salvador, we, we started hearing all these news cycles about like the Nigerian government and the Indian government. And now this is like an issue at the government level. Um, so it's really exciting to be around for the nation state adoption of a new uh, new new base base currency. At least that's what I think is going to happen. Um, and in that context, I've been trying to use my time at Bitcoin Magazine to explore uh, basically areas where the fiat system is totally broken for people and and in ways that many don't really think about it. Like, like I, for example, had interviewed many activists from this region of Western and Central Africa, uh, like let's call it Francophone Africa, um, through my work at HRF. And we'd been working with them on like pro-democracy stuff. But like the monetary piece was never really at the forefront, which is weird because when I then went back to ask them about money, they have these incredible stories. And in fact, this woman, Farida Naburema, who I profiled in, in the, the essay at Bitcoin Magazine, uh, fighting monetary colonialism with open source code, 
I mean, I get on the phone with her and I'm asking her about it. And she's like, no, no, no. Like, that's the reason we are fighting the government in our country is because of monetary colonialism. It's the primary reason. In 1960 or so, when Togo gained its independence from France, their first leader was assassinated by the French government because he wanted to create his own, you know, a Togolese currency with a Togolese central bank. And that's like one example out of many that I cover in the essay. There's crazy shit happened in Niger, in Mali, in Senegal. Guinea is probably the craziest. You had you had the typical kind of like Cold War style assassinations of leaders that didn't want to comply with this French colonial system, which we can get into. But the, this event that happened in Guinea, uh, this small country in West Africa, was so crazy in the early 1960s, around 1960, I believe, there was this thing called Operation Persil, where basically the Guineans were like, get out of here. You know, we want to run our own thing now. And the French were like, no. And then they, they kind of went back and forth. And the French were like, fine, we're leaving. But then they like burned everything in their wake. They just like destroyed everything on the way out. <laughs> just like totally, uh, you know, just total sort of retribution. Um, and then they like, once the Ghanaians had made their own currency, the, the French set up these counterfeit operations and printed an enormous amount of this currency and then just dumped it into the country and they wrecked the economy. I just thought that was insane. I mean, that, that that's not, the truth is stranger than fiction sometimes, like that is wild. So just digging into that history and just seeing how this, uh, these 15 countries, which constitute 183 million people around a, a territory, 80% the size of India, are still controlled by the French and they basically subsidize the French way of life. One of these activists told me that they don't think France would be any bigger of a power than Austria if it didn't have the colonies. So basically the colonies give them a place to sell their exports at higher than market prices and a place to import raw goods at lower than market prices, where then the French would then make the goods into cars, furniture, whatever, and then sell them back to these colonies at a higher price. So if you, unless you have this mechanism, which, which also relied on having like a control over the central banking of these countries, where these countries would have like the CFA franc and then, you know, the French would have the franc or now the euro. So like whenever these countries export and earn, right, whenever like an Ivorian coffee producer would sell a million dollars of coffee to China or America, those dollars or yuan go through a French currency exchange and the French freaking pocket the hard money, the harder money. They, they pocketed the francs or now they pocket the euros and they credit these poor countries with CFA francs in their account which are not convertible really elsewhere. So the whole system is, is, is very uh, devious, but it's also very effective. And it's just an incredible thing. And I, I learned about it recently, wanted to share with the Bitcoin community because of relevance to you all, these people in these countries, they don't have another way forward. Like what are their options to get rid of these French colonialism? Well, okay, we could start our own currency. Yeah, that hasn't been a very good strategy generally. Like most of these countries with an independent currency in Africa tend to have like hyperinflation, right. et cetera. Okay, well, they could have a regional currency. Well, you know, the French kind of hijacked one of the plans um, and there really isn't anything else on the table. So as Fode Diop, the other guy I interviewed from Senegal said, what are we going to do, wait around? No, we're going to like seize our freedoms. So you're going to start to see a a an increasing amount of Francophone kind of activists start to use Bitcoin and I'm going to be involved in that effort. So um, Farida Naburema, who's like, the you know, arguably the leader of the Togolese movement at the moment, she's going to be uh, hanging out with us at the Oslo Freedom Forum in a few months. 
what I told her to do was, um, you know, we're going to have this whole Bitcoin track of programming and Matt's going to be there and many others are going to be there. I told her to basically prepare a little like challenge to us. And, and I told her to say, to get up there and basically tell us what she needs and what she's seen on the ground and we'll help her. Um, because I think we as a community absolutely want to help these people gain their freedoms. Um, it's not going to come through politics. It's not going to come through pieces of paper. It's only going to come through open source code. So 100%. I mean, that, that's, I guess, the way I wanted to start out. Yeah, I mean, this is what the fight's all about. I mean, at least it's to me. I think uh, I think a lot of freaks would agree. It's, it's just, it's pretty crazy that, I mean, what'd you say? 183 million people. That's half of America. That's yeah, and get, th and get this. When the French originally set up the colonial system, there were about 40 million French and 30 million people in these countries. So it wasn't like quite apartheid. But today there's 67 million French and 183 million. So it's like total apartheid. And in the future, by 2100, apparently, if you look at demographies, it's going to be 800 million and like 70 million French. You have like a negative birth rate or whatever. Um, so it's going to become totally unsustainable. But there's not like a lot of activity. Like essentially this year, you're going to see like a reform for some of the countries of the what's called the reserve requirement. So basically when these, again, when these countries earn through whether it's remittances or exports, et cetera, um, they have to put 50% of that into Paris, into a French bank where they don't have discretion over how that money is spent. Um, so that requirement is going to be eased for some countries and I think in like 2027, there's going to be an, a new, they're going to rebrand one of the currencies to like, e call, it, call it the ECO, uh, which is named after like the group of countries in West Africa. But it looks like the French are going to remain in control pretty much from here. And Macron has been like going to Africa and he's been going to Burkina Faso in these countries. And he's been talking up how like France needs Africa. And if you think about it, 85% of French speakers live in Africa. So like the French nation really relies on Africa now. It's really interesting. So um, what people don't understand though, it's, it's not just the language, right? It's, it's the money beneath it. That, that's what he's really uh, trying to, to support. Um, and again, we're not, it's not even like we're on the back nine of this system. Like they're trying to aggressively expand it. So, and, and again, the way that the system works is that each of these countries is ruled by a dictator who has a deal with France and France basically provides them weapons and support and diplomatic cover in exchange for keeping the currency system going. So it's like they have their own private reserve in this area of Africa, basically for, for raw goods like uranium. Their uranium that powers the French electricity, by the way, which is 75% nuclear in French. It all comes from like Niger and Chad and stuff. And they all get it for below market prices. And they do and that they have a dictator there to, to keep it, you know, to keep it cheap. And if they walked away, you know, not only do they have to worry about action from the French, right? They have they have their reserves that are stuck over in France, right? That they're being held hostage, basically. Yeah, and and you know that's been part of the deal is that the French uh, make it so that there's a huge number of disincentives to leaving the system, and ultimately right. they would they would bust out the military ones uh, or or the violent ones um, if people really went too far. But again, just to underline, like there's no real, real reform on the table for these people, 183 million people. And as Fode Diop says, like these, most of these people never have st stepped foot in a bank. They don't have a credit card. 70% of these people in these countries by and large are, are unbanked and, but they have cell phones, man. And he's like, we're going to, we're going to skip freaking, we're going to leapfrog just like we leapfrog landlines to go to mobile phones. We're going to leapfrog right. banks and go right to Bitcoin. It's like kind of amazing. Um, and I, I think his focus on, 
like this is really where lightning is so important right because he's like we're not going to be able to afford on-chain fees we need to make payments that are like five dollars ten dollars and if that's our only currency like it's one thing if you're an american and you're like spending your fiat and saving in your bitcoin but if you're in senegal and like you're in this closed economy circular economy of bitcoin like yeah you 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 really need lightning um there's no real way around it uh, or something else that would scale uh, in a similar way with lower fees but hey this is what we have so that's why he's dedicated his his life to that i thought that was super eye-opening um to learn about the other thing that's important to know is that there's so many obstacles in the form of scams uh whether it's cardano or whatever like these people are being like always whispered in their ear about this other currency right so it is going to be a little bit of a struggle but you know as long as we take the approach of you know bitcoin first this is a bitcoin first advocacy approach um and bitcoin becomes the currency of decolonization then we're then we're looking good then we're looking good yeah i mean i think it's going to be messy right like there's going to be the shit corners tend to really flock into these environments when they when they see a situation that's advantageous to them. Well, I, I somebody I know shared, you know, there's the Cardano guys are going nuts for it, right? Because they they have all these deals with these African governments um, to to promote their 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 shit coin, right? And it's like you got to point out to these people that to be to be careful, you know, you just gotta you gotta just gently remind them, and you, you don't have to be mean about it, but. You just have to basically be like, look, you got to be careful. Like at the end of the day, the way I try to explain it is all these other cryptocurrencies are fiat currencies. Like there's a small group of people who make the decisions and you don't have control over them. Bitcoin is the only one where, you know, nobody's got control. We know exactly what the issuance and the monetary policy is going to be. The French can't control it. The local dictator can't control it. And Silicon Valley can't control it. It's not the case for any of these other systems, whether they be fiat controlled by a currency board the French colonial system, some dictator's currency, uh, or Cardano with Charles Hodgkinson. Everybody's got a small group of people who's going to control the rules. This is our one-way ticket out, right? And and it's actually happening. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, I mean, when you when you, when we talk about this colonial Frank, I mean, it, it, to me, it sounds like a shitcoin scheme, but that's because I just approach it with a Bitcoin <laughs> lens, right? Like you have to hold it with the uh, Papa French, you know, you see that with the pre-mines and other utility token schemes and whatnot. But um, one thing I, I've, I've tried to really highlight um, on this show and on, on Rabbit Hole Recap and just on Twitter in general um, is that you really have to follow the incentives, right? Like no one's really better than the incentives. And one of the cool things about Bitcoin is that the incentives align where people are greedy, but it works out for a more robust system. Um, but when you look at something you know, after reading your article, which by the way, like once again, like I had no fucking idea that this was going on until I read your article, until I read your piece, um, is, is you have to look at the incentives, right? And the French have absolutely no reason to have real reform. They're going to, they're going to, no. you know, they're going to give lip service and that's about it. And the, the, the powers that be in the individual countries have good deals set up for them. And there's a lot of corruption there and they're not going to really reform from the top. And I feel like there's this, impulse with Bitcoiners because we've had this El Salvador moment, which we'll get to in a second, but I don't want to jump there yet, um, where they think like there could be a top down thing. And, you know, our boy Russell Okun, uh, he wrote a piece, uh, I think, to the Nigerian president imploring him to adopt Bitcoin. Um, and I know that was a just a it, it was it was a it was a strategic tactic by him. And I know he understands the reality of the situation. But I think ultimately what we're looking at here is is the only way th- this move continues 
is from a grassroots approach. It's from the people first. Um, and then the governments are going to begrudgingly follow. Like you can, we can't expect these governments to, to do it themselves. Right. Yeah. I think that's really important. Um, you know, without going to El Salvador, the, the two models are either that the government forces it. You have like this, like top down adoption, or you have this grassroots, uh, kind of like what's called popular dollarization, which is what happened in Latin America, right? So Ecuador is a good example. So they, you know, the dollar just became like so well, so used there that like eventually the government sort of adopted it. And that's, I think, what you're going to look at here in these, in these, uh, what we call CIFA countries, these CFA countries. Um, there isn't going to be a Bukele type reformer who can like kind of independently decide to just add Bitcoin. That seems highly unlikely given the control the French have and the IMF and the World Bank, by the way, which which are very involved in this colonial operation. They're like, you know, part and parcel of the whole deal. They they're kind of like they work. They're kind of controlled by the French in a way uh, and, and they work with the French to enforce the system. They're not going to want it. And as you said, the local dictators like aren't going to want it either. So it's going to have to come from the bottom up. And eventually, if enough people use it, you know, the government's kind of have to react. So I would say that in this scenario, Yes, it's not going to be a, you know, a, a top-down thing. It's going to have to come from the people. Which I mean, and in, in, to a degree, that kind of was what happened in El Salvador. It just seems like their president was opportunistic as well. Like, a, I mean, I remember Mahler's was saying that he was onboarding like twenty thousand El Salvadorians uh, a day, um, or maybe a week. Uh, that's completely different if if it's one or the other. But he was he was onboarding a, a ton of El Salvadorians. Um, before the president reached out, right? And he saw this was kind of happening on a grassroots level. Um, and then he made his move. But I, I imagine a lot more will, will decide to dig in um, rather than embrace, right? Yeah, and, and clearly that started, the seed grew out of Bitcoin Beach and expanded and eventually caught the, the president's attention. And, you know, I maybe we can, we'll start maybe talking about El Salvador in a second, but... I think what's important is that uh, as we head into this nation state era of Bitcoin here, Bitcoin's going to use certain governments as vessels for it. Like it, it doesn't, it's like almost like this organism that just grows and it, 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 it kind of sensed a vulnerability. <laughs> it, it popped through to the next uh, layer here uh, in El Salvador, but it, it, it doesn't really care who adopts it or how it gets adopted. But we're going to see different, different ways that's going to break down. And again, yeah, like in West Africa, I think the only hope is, is bottom up from the people and in other places it, it, uh, it may be different, but it's worth mentioning that the remittance factor here, uh, which is, I believe one of the reasons why the, El the Salvadorans ended up going for it is the amount of money they could actually save. So I just wanted to run the numbers for the freaks here. Cause they're crazy. Um, <laughs> so the average, uh, so first of all, some of these countries have five, 10, 15% of their GDP is in remittances. So money that family, friends, et cetera, are sending back home. Uh, so in the case of, Nigeria, which is not Francophone, but it's in the West African area, they they have about 7% of their GDP. This is a massive country. 7% of their GDP is remittances. So you're talking $25, $30 billion per year, right? Okay. So the average $200 remittance to sent to Sub-Saharan Africa, according to the World Bank, has a fee of 8%. The average $500 remittance has a fee of 9%. So you can start to see why these governments, when they're sitting there, and they're looking at maybe like increasing their GDP by like a half percent or a percent just by upgrading the software that they use for people to, to move money around. That is very appealing, right? Um, and, you know, we're currently using this dinosaur technology for remittances. That's absurd. Um, 
And now we have, you know, proper good money to, to do remittances with. And that's, again, one of the reasons why I think Bukele uh, did what he did. And it's it's what um, uh, Lord Futsitwa has been very uh, eloquent about describing this politician uh, from from Tonga, who's great. And he's his nation has 40% reliance GDP on remittances, right? So, so they can save numerous percent of their GDP just by upgrading to the better money system. And I, I think that you're going to see more and more of that start to just be discussed in the international aid community. Uh, but, you know, as I mentioned in the article, still today, the human rights space, the international aid space, clueless about Bitcoin, clueless. So, I mean, first of all, shout out to the ride or die freaks who uh, join us every week in the live chat, um, either through Twitch, Twitter or YouTube. Uh, you guys make this show extra special, um, shouting out your questions and your feedback. Um, we have BTC pins uh, in the comments mentioning that I call them El Salvadorians. It's Salvadorians. Uh, apologies there. Um, but we also have 6102 Bitcoin in um, the live chat. Uh, you know, with El Salvador, there's there's about 6 million Salvadorians, right? Um, with with these CFA countries um, in Africa, we said, what'd you say? 180 million people. Yeah. Um, what does have you given any thought of what the path looks like of trying to onboard 180 million people onto lightning like how many people do we think are currently using lightning probably less than a million right yeah well let's look at the adoption of the cell phone i think it's useful so only a couple years ago uh, even in let's say 2010 and i know that seems like a while ago and yeah the iphone came out in 2007 so that was fairly early but Back then, there was only like 5% penetration in, in, in these countries with the cell phones, um, especially ones that had data, smartphones, okay. Um, now you have, uh, even in the, some of the poorer, more rural countries like Ethiopia and Sudan, et cetera, you have 25%, 30% um, internet and phone penetration. And by 2025, it's gonna be 50%. So when we look at this population of 183 people in CFA countries, Again, because of the French exploitation, not only are they very anti-democratic, you know, ruled by dictators, but they're also like hugely underdeveloped. They're, they're basically the poorest countries in the world. If you look at any list of the world's poorest countries, you know, Chad, Niger, Guinea-Bissau, they're always at the bottom because they've been basically like strip mined uh, by the French, basically. It's like the capital strip mine, the Alan Farrington thing. By the way, great freaking article. Freaks should read it. Um, but but this is that at like a, a large scale. So. We, we don't have 183 million people who can use Bitcoin right now um, in these countries. We, we probably have a, I'm, you know, my guess would be 20 to 30 million at most. But that's going to change over the next decade. You know, we're going to get there. So I think Bitcoin needs to grow alongside of that. Um, but what Fode was telling me was that what's interesting is that as far as technology and like um, the Bitcoin economy goes, it's been very active in the Anglophone countries. So, for example, Nigeria, Ghana. Kenya and South Africa have uh, a ton of Bitcoin activity. In fact, some of them lead the world uh, in Bitcoin activity per capita. But the Francophone countries have, have basically, they've been ignored. They take a back seat. A lot of it's because of the language barrier. A lot of it's because when tech companies or investors or entrepreneurs go to Africa, they tend to go to the, the Anglophone countries. So we, you know, there's not going to be this massive influx of people right away. It's got to start in communities with education and it'll grow organically. But I, I have every confidence that by 2030, a huge percentage of these people are gonna be using Bitcoin in one way or another. Um, as for the, the question 6102 raised, it's a good one. Um, I, I, 
you know, I tend to think that it's going to grow organically. You, you're not going to have, I think El Salvador is like somewhat unique, like, cause it's the first one and they're like going to do it. They're going to try and do it in three months. And if you listen to McCormick's interview with Bukele, like <laughs> he's like, I think we could do it. Yeah. It's like uh, dude, that's like 11 weeks or whatever. He's like, all right, we're going to get it done. But I'm not sure that's going to be the, the, the standard moving forward. Uh, like this sort of forced integration. I think it'll be a little slower. So we'll see. I don't know, Matt, are you, are you worried about like the lightning network buckling under the pressure here? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we're not ready right now. Um, I think that's fine. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I, I think we're kind of in the age of the briefcase cell phones. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think people couldn't even fathom the little Nokia brick cell phones at that point, uh, let alone where we are at today. Right. Um, I know that's a little bit of a faith argument, but I think, you know, you have to build a, a very strong foundation and then you can build on top of that strong foundation. If you have a weak foundation, then we're going to end up with real problems uh, in 20 years. Um, I guess now's a good time to jump to El Salvador because mm -hmm. um, this is basically a working test case with 6 million people, which I think is already uh, is, is going to, you know, put some stress uh, on our current infrastructure um, you know, I've been expecting high fees on chain fees, been wrong about that. So, you know, maybe we'll have more time where on chain fees will be low. Um, but every time you, you know, you hit the chain, you're, you're talking a, a relatively high fee. Um, you know, and, and in these cases, if we're talking five, $10, that could be a very big deal for them. Um, so what I see happening is kind of custodial solutions popping up. And we have two, two different types of, of custodial situations, right? We have uh, in El Salvador, we have this Galois money, this Bitcoin beach wallet, which is uh, no KYC controlled by the community. I think they have a two or three multi-sig that holds the funds by known community members. Um, and it's open source so people can fork that. So you could end up in a situation where you have a bunch of little communities that all have their own custodial lightning wallet infrastructure uh, that interact with each other on this open monetary network, which doesn't seem like that bad of a situation, at least in the in the near and, term. And there's no like scaling issue there because they're all their own instance, right? In a way. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's 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 batch transactions, right? So you can have 20,000, 40,000 transactions per time it hits the chain mm -hmm. uh, because it's a custodial lightning wallet. Um but with the actual wallet that the president is releasing, I guess they're calling it the Chivo wallet, mm -hmm. um, I have a lot of concerns with because we talked about incentives earlier, right? And one of the phenomenons I've been watching is the death of cash. And in the Western world, really the death of cash has happened because of a UX situation. It's like the younger generation doesn't like dealing with cash. They think it's easier to use their digital payment apps. Um, but the, the issue there is as cat and, and then we've also seen in these countries, um, in certain countries, we've seen restrictions in cash start getting instituted for the, the stragglers that are still using it. So it's twofold. You have cash is, is being chosen not to be used by a large group of the populace. And then of the remaining people, um, you have, you, you, you have a, uh, ostracization of them using it, whether that's explicit and you can't make a transaction over $5,000 without getting reported, 
or if that's just you go into a store and you try and spend a hundred dollar bill and they look at you like you're a criminal because they're just not used to people spending cash. Um, it's be that's becoming more and more of an issue. And I expect that phenomenon to increase. So when you look at the incentives uh, for digitizing a populace in terms of financial transactions, the real incentive I see for for most leaders in the world is greater surveillance and greater control. Um, and if you look at this this Chivo wallet, um, I mean, it's going to be a custodial wallet. Uh, that it's going to be. Uh, you know, fully KYC'd as much as they're capable of KYCing there. I, I know they have trouble with IDing people and, you know, tagging their populace, but as you move more digitized, it's going to be easier. Um, so they're going to have full surveillance capabilities on this, on any transaction that happens on, on this wallet. And they're going to have the ability to seize funds and block transactions, right? Which is issues we've seen with the PayPal's of the world and the Venmo's of the world. Um, the advantage here is it still can work with you know, the open monetary network that is Bitcoin, you can theoretically send to an outside wallet that is self custody or something like the Bitcoin beach wallet that is a better custodial model than than, than the countries. But I wonder how long that lasts. I also wonder, you know, you see him announcing uh, the president announced, there's going to be no fees, it's going to be fast transactions, right? And that's a great way to incentivize people and you get your free $30 with Bitcoin. Right. It's a great way to incentivize people to use your wallet over like a free open source sovereign wallet. Um, and I, th I think we're going to see these soft pushes to try and get people into these more closed ecosystems, right? Yeah, I mean, we can talk about the downsides, but we also need to talk about the upsides here. Um, 100%. So uh, just to stay on the downsides for a second, um, the question is, right, so if it's ever... If the, if the ability of this wallet, which I think you and I would agree would be very popular because it's going to offer like services that open source wallets will be kind of harder to uh, replicate with regard to integration with the banking system um, and basically like cheap, cheap, cheap exchanges back and forth. Uh, are they going to close those bridges? Right. So would there ever be right. a day when you can't just like pay a lightning invoice like from your Chiba wallet? So that's, you know, that's to be that's a trust situation. You're trusting this guy and his team or whoever comes after him, you know, once he's no longer there. Um, but at the end of the day, like there's some interesting big picture things here. First of all, it's just nuts that they're going to buy essentially $30 of Bitcoin for, for probably 3 million people. I mean, probably half the population will claim it, maybe more. Right. Uh, if you look at like internet and mobile phone rates, it's 50, 60% of the country. And I don't know, say most of them take it. You're talking like, 3000 Bitcoin that, that they're just about to just airdrop into the population. So it's kind of funny because we're watching this happen with Bitcoin. I think what we were afraid of really was that this would happen with like some random altcoin, right? That some government right. would be convinced. And it almost happened in like what, like Cardano was like in Ethiopia. So I think it we're, still might happen. It, it still, still probably will happen. happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like what our, our model here has to account for the fact that it could have happened with an altcoin. Um, it, it could have been a Bitcoin ban. It could have been a stable coin that's like entirely like focused on surveillance and control. I still think it's remarkable that they're doing it with Bitcoin and that they're working with Strike and, and Rockstar and Jack and stuff. And I, I see upside. Um, I also see just general upside in terms of just geopolitically, this de-risking the asset for the other countries that are thinking about it in Latin America. You've got Paraguay, a bunch of other countries thinking about doing something similar. Like once they actually see this thing live and active, 
And we all know Bitcoin's incentive structure, everybody listening. Once you start using Bitcoin, you don't go back. You, you don't like not use it anymore. So right. we all know what direction this is heading in. So I think there are these big picture geopolitical kind of like implications that are super positive and also just hilarious that he's going to drop 3000 Bitcoin on people. I mean, in 10 years, that's going to be so crazy to think about, um, yeah, I mean, you know, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you, uh, I saw you made an interesting comment on Twitter that, uh, you know, 3000 Bitcoin is also the unspent capacity, uh, the liquidity pool of Whirlpool. Um, so it would be great to see some of that Bitcoin go into Whirlpool. Um, I would, uh, I, yeah, I want to be clear that, I mean, this is strictly superior to basically any other digitization scheme. Right. right? Like anything else we've ever seen in the history of the world. I mean, let's I mean, be clear. Like the right? argument, the argument I was making against the Chiva wallet is the is basically the argument that you make against WePay, right? Like WePay in China. Or what is it? WeChat, but you it's you you pay through WeChat, it controls your whole life. They're they're moving everyone onto that system. It's not mm -hmm. connected to an open monetary network. They have complete control and complete surveillance, and you have to use, you know, the yuan, right? Mm -hmm. Bitcoin yeah, so is strictly this. This Chiva wallet is a strictly is is strictly an improvement over something like that, which is what we are going to probably see in most of the world before they move over to a Bitcoin thing, or at least we're going to see leaders try and push into that kind of system, right? Yeah, and look, we're going to be educating as many people as we can about. Um, using, you know, non-custodial wallets. And we're going to be doing that anyway. And a lot of people who end up using Bitcoin in El Salvador in their first year of experience, I mean, look, they're going to go through the same learning experience that we all went through. And in that first year, a lot of them are going to be like, screw it, I want to be my own bank. And they're going to move their funds into a non-custodial wallet. Like right. there's going to be uh, a significant portion of people who, who do that over time. Um, and it may develop into a situation where, where it's sort of like what you're going to see with Paxful once once they integrate Lightning, which should be shortly, from what I understand. Um, where you know your Paxful account, if you're in Argentina or Nigeria or wherever, it's a KYC bank account, but but you can then withdraw it, you know, into Lightning, and then you know that's where you get into the the, the issues with privacy and Lightning. But generally speaking, a lot of those can be solved at the wallet level, and and people will have almost this functionality to be able to have like an ATM essentially. And I think that's that's what we can hope and push for in El Salvador is like, yes, there's going to be this like advantaged KYC government wallet. That's basically unavoidable. Um, but, you know, as long as citizens can withdraw to their own bank and they can be their own, you know, decision maker of their financial destiny, massive upside. So just, yeah, just again, zooming out how ridiculous this is that this country is actually like trying to figure out how to roll out Bitcoin to their population. Whereas like our governments are trying to figure out how to steal our rights from us by implementing CBDCs. So, um, you know, that's kind of the, that's the big picture we need to keep in the back of our mind, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I like I said, I think this is a, a massive net benefit. Um, I think it's important to, to stay vigilant and 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 to really threat model this stuff out though and, and threat model the incentives, um, but but yeah, I mean this is something that I did not expect at all. It completely caught me off guard, and it's really great to see. Um, just, I, we have yeah, go on. Just two other things I wanted to mention. First of all, there were a lot of ridiculous takes on the webs about like how this was somehow bad for Bitcoin or whatever. Terrible takes. Obviously, this is like the best thing you could imagine for Bitcoin. So I'm not sure what those people were thinking. Do you uh, know what the argument was? Well, the argument was essentially that uh, there's an article in the law, Article 7, that essentially, you know, and a lot of libertarians were pushing this ar argument that like it's coercive 
because it would force merchants to accept Bitcoin. And, you know, if you're not a strict, so first of all, okay, fine. But like a lot of those people never said a damn word when Bolivia banned Bitcoin in 2014, legal ban of Bitcoin. None of these people said anything. Only when, when a government adopts Bitcoin, do they say something? So that's a little weird. You have to think about the signal there. Uh, and second of all, there are like a whole bunch of other reasons to, to, to believe that like the merchants using this thing are not going to be forced to hold Bitcoin. Like, in fact, from what I understand, that's a second step. Like, basically, if you receive a Bitcoin payment from America or wherever, or from someone in your store, from what I understand into this new system, it will actually automatically convert into uh, in, into the, the the sort of the the dollar the you know the sort of dollar denominated account in the in the app to withdraw it into Bitcoin into your own custody requires a second step. So I, I thought the whole thing was a very wrongheaded critique, um, but we'll see we'll see how it goes. Um, the second thing is that the mining piece is really interesting because uh, yeah, like the, the, the they're obviously going to do. Um, uh, geothermal mining with the volcanic energy there's two interesting parts to this number one almost okay so all central american countries which are relatively poor compared to the, the region around them have volcanoes and they have stranded energy there they can't can't access um and the cool part is now what they can do is sell bond and then i know max keezer and a bunch of other people have said this but they're actually going to do it like these countries guatemala honduras panama Colombia, they, they can sell bonds based on the future earnings of the renewable energy. And that's not possible today, like before Bitcoin, that would be like, you can't monetize stranded renewable energy like that very well. You're going to be able to do it. That's very interesting. So it gives these countries a, 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 an alternative to borrowing from the fucking IMF or the World Bank, right? It allows them to, to borrow against what they already own, right? Really interesting from a development and kind of like, you know, geopolitical into independence point of view. So I thought that was worth mentioning too. Yeah. I mean, if you want to know if it's a good thing or not, uh, the proof is in the IMF and the world bank being pretty pissed off about the movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Being really, you know, we're not, we're not helping, which I thought was funny. Like who at the world bank, the world bank, trust me, I've dealt with these people. They don't really understand what, how Bitcoin works. Like it was funny to me to see the government ask for technical implementation help. Like what, what like is Matt O'Dell going to hire the world bank to help set up his node <laughs> or whatever? It's like a total joke. So but I'm glad they said no. I'm glad they said no. I mean, that's what really, what really pissed me off was all the shit corners just like flying in there like immediately and just like trying to take advantage of the situation. But, you know, I've come to expect it. Inevitable. Uh, we, we have to know that that's going to happen through the next decade. And we just, just have to be prepared for it. I just want to go back to the two critiques that you mentioned. Uh, the first one being that, you know, that's a legal tender law and it requires them to accept Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, like, like people can't expect, like we live in a certain world, you know, and it's a world of legal tender laws. All these people were forced to accept U.S. dollars for however many years already. Um, and now they're, they're basically, we would have seen a law that said, they're forced to accept U.S. dollars through a shitty U.S. dollar government app. And instead, it's a lightning compatible Bitcoin app and they can right. choose which one it is. Like it's strictly a benefit. Um, and you like live in little fairyland if you think otherwise. Well, you know, the like, funniest thing expect? is these economists were basically arguing for the last five years against us that Bitcoin isn't money because it's not legal tender. And you're like, wait a second. Now it's legal tender. And now you're finding some other way to complain about it. You have to realize they're never going to like, uh, give up and 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 you know, they're just going to dig in however they can. I just thought it was funny how 
you know, now we have it's legal tender and they find some excuse. Oh, it's, it's enforced to legal tender. Like what? As if like the dollar isn't like forced, like in a, you know, de facto way. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I think it's worthy to, we all should be paying attention to this. I think Bitcoiners should go there. I'm planning to go this summer for sure. And, and just see how it's like working and see how we can all contribute. Um, obviously they trying have, to. They even ahead. have a, uh, they have a, a carve out in the actual bill that is very obvious carve out. It was like, you have to accept Bitcoin if you're technically able to accept it. Right. Which is like, it's, no, it's you just, know, what more can you ask for in that? It, it's just funny that if we went back in time to like 2015 and you told somebody that a nation state was going to adopt Bitcoin and, and this person was a libertarian and, and I don't think they would have a problem over Article 7 in this bill. They'd be like, are you fucking kidding me? A nation state is adopting Bitcoin as legal tender. So I think a bunch of people just really got, they just, they kind of, you know, look, classic missing, uh, missing the forest for the trees. Stay focused on the signal. The signal is that a nation state adopted Bitcoin. The rest is largely noise. Um, we can we can help improve it, though, for sure. And what was the second criticism? Is something about mining? No, no, no. I just was. I was a point I wanted uh, to make about the fact that uh, it's going to unlock the ability right. of many nations that are poorer uh, to capitalize on stranded renewables that haven't even been mined yet 100%. Through, through bonds, as opposed to borrowing from the IMF or World Bank. That's a really cool idea. And I think you've seen it. You've seen the beginning of it. It's happening now. So that's, and just that's more on that level. If you're a resource-rich country in general and you don't have the infrastructure to sell into a global marketplace, it's extremely powerful that you can just monetize your resources directly into a free market with just internet access. Like that's pretty – like I, I, it's completely understated how uh, massive that free market is in terms of Bitcoin mining. Yeah, no, 100%. And there'll be countries that are rich that don't have, for whatever reason, renewable, you know, or whatever resources they want, that they're going to go ahead and like finance it in other countries. So it's going to be really interesting to see moving forward on that note. Um, we have some freaks in the comments mentioning a recent write up um, mm -hmm. by uh, another freak actually at Rod Armor, Casey Rod Armor, who wrote up. Um, a proposal for something that another freak, Eric, Eric Sirian on Twitter, um, that's S-I-R-I-O-N, has been working on, which is Chaumian Mints, uh, which is a an already an existing concept that dates back to, I believe, the 90s, um, to a more trust-minimized custodial option. The issue they always had in the past was... Um, it relied on fiat, so it relied on, on you know, major third parties that you had to rely on to actually custody the fiat, but they're mixing it together hmm. with lightning and a federated model. So it's custodial lightning that gives you very good privacy properties. So right now, custodial lightning options, whether you're using Kaloi money or wallet of Satoshi or Chivo wallet um, is, is, is not private at all to the custodian. The custodian can see everything. Um, mm -hmm. You're also, you usually have to trust the custodian hundred percent. Um, the Galois money wallet, they they have this multi-sig to hold the, custo the custody. So that's strictly better. But in this, it's a larger federation. So something like Liquid. So you'd have like a 16-member federation that custodies the funds. So you'd have to, they'd all have to screw you over to take your money. And then on the privacy side, it'd be uh, extremely private. Um, so that is a very promising thing, I think, especially if if we had many of them 
but I, I think that is a, it is a long time off, but it's, it's, it's one of those things, just like we said earlier, I think, you know, where we're, we're looking at the suitcase cell phone. Um, yeah. yeah and 6102 is mentioning script cash, which I think was Frank Braun's uh, proposal, um, which was also Chalmian based, I think 6102. Um, but I don't know what's happening with that, but there's all these different things that are just way above our pay grade. Um, and I know it kind of sounds like a blind faith type of thing, but I think the important thing is you build the, you have to build a strong foundation. And then as this other stuff, um, you know, gets built out, like at least it gets built out on this top foundation and there's going to be, you know, there's going to be mishaps along the way and there's going to be different paths we take that might not work out well. Um, and we hopefully will learn from those mistakes and will improve. Right. Yeah. And just again, the ability to use the open source non-custodial stuff. Uh, you know, I was with someone the other day, she was in El Salvador and I was like helping, helping her understand this and set her up real quick with the moon wallet, which by the way, of course has this like killer Spanish version in El Salvador. So she is super easy for her to download and just love the way that the flow uh, is set up where it, you know, I used to be, I remember a couple of years ago trying to onboard people and some of these wallets would like immediately ask, you know, for you to write down these 24 words. And that's like the worst possible flow for onboarding someone who doesn't know what Bitcoin is. So I just, I love the way that the moon wallet has it as like the emergency kit. It's very, that's a smart way of branding it. Like that's the emergency kit is your, is your seed and you want to write it down. Um, but basically this, she's able to set it up and like, I just immediately send her Bitcoin and like, you know, she's sending lightning back to me and it's like, her mind is completely blown because she's like, I don't, I never put in an ID. Like what, how does this even right. work? And I'm like, yeah, that's the magic of it. It literally is magic. So you're going to drag a certain percentage of actual non-custodial use up, right? It's inevitable. So, so that's yeah. another side to mention. That's just to be clear. That's moon with two U's. Yes. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, <laughs> yes. Um, the freaks are well aware. I, I love moon wallet. I talk about it a lot. I use moon wallet. Um, I think, um, Moonwall is a perfect example of this like bleeding edge um, that, you know, even six months ago, I couldn't really fathom that we'd have that kind of UX in, in a, a relatively not way. There's still trust, certain trust elements there. Um, but, you know, I, mm -hmm. I think I think these are just growing pains. And I, I think even like if you go back two years. You know, I was just digesting constant, constant Bitcoin all the time. And I couldn't even fathom where we are today. You yeah. know, like I, I, I completely caught off guard by no. a lot of the lightning stuff. A lot of the, the coin join tools, Samurai wallet completely caught me off guard. It's way farther ahead than I expected. Moon wallet just to me came out of, came out of fucking nowhere, like six months ago. Dude. And they're uh -huh. like, uh, it's really amazing how carefully they think about things. Like uh, they have a ton of stuff they're rolling out later this year. Like this thing that you and I have, talked about a lot that you know you've helped bring to life a little bit with the hexa wallet folks but this idea of like uh essentially like a you know lightning tip jar that you could have that the, from what i understand uh they're gonna try and do that attack that with key send so they're gonna basically have an option in the app hopefully in the next year where you go into your moon wallet and you just tr you just create like a like a string or a qr and then you can just plug that into your twitter bio or whatever and then it just it's like a rotating it rotates the public key and like it's just you could receive lightning, which would be crazy and like really amazing. Um, it's the single most important use case. The single most important use case for an activist today is, yeah, is to be able to easily accept Bitcoin from around the world 
without like hosting a BTC pay server and, on and some especially especially Lightning, as we discussed with the fees and stuff. Um, there's also stuff to look at with Bolt 12. What Rusty's doing with offers is really cool. So you could have a similar functionality. At the end of the day, it's just going to come down to the wallet manufacturer and what they want, how they want to approach it. But from what I'm seeing, I think by this time next year, there'll be two or three different ways to do it. Um, and you'll ba basically be able to uh, offer that as part of your wallet. Like your wallet will just generate like a, a static lightning address that that will that you can put up on wherever uh, will having pretty minimal privacy uh, vulnerabilities, which is crazy. And, and it forces Twitter's hand. That's the, the main idea here. Because as we all know, you know, Jack has a lot of control over Square, but very little at Twitter. I think he has like very small percentage of the power there. So I don't know how much he can actually push Lightning integration into their tip system. It seems like that's where it's going, but let's just imagine that if all of a sudden right. a lot of popular accounts are have figured out this way to like just insert their Lightning tip jar, that's gonna in the same way that Clubhouse forced Twitter to do Spaces, that's gonna force Twitter to integrate Lightning, right? So, um, but you yeah, can I see mean, where they're going with the product roadmap. Yeah, I mean, I think if Jack had dictatorial, you know, dictatorship control over Twitter, had actual control over Twitter, we'd already have Lightning in Twitter. Totally. Um, I, I, I think ultimately, you know, I don't even a, a a direct Lightning integration to Twitter isn't as appealing to me as having, you know, a bunch of open source uh, tools that allow you to take these donations because ultimately, when Twitter does bend the knee and add, um you know, lightning, it's going to be in a centralized custodial kind of surveillance type relationship anyway. And we're going to have a lot of the same pain points that we have with something like cash app, right? Where, where people's accounts get frozen and, and, and funds are blocked for whatever reason, or they fail KYC checks, it's going to be inundated with all this different ID information. Um, so ultimately, what we want to see regardless, I, I think it's even bigger than forcing their hand, right? Like I want to see, you know, this time next year, maybe two years, you know, maybe I'm being a little bit too high time preference, like four or five different ways that you can basically just paste a static text string somewhere, whether that's a Twitter bio or Reddit bio or, you know, a Telegram chat or something and accept donations from around yeah. the world in a semi-private yeah. way. Like, because right now you can do it with a fixed on-chain address and you're paying on-chain fees and everyone can just track everything that's happening there, right? And that's obviously not ideal. Yeah, there is Ellen URL as well. Obviously, we we we've been looking at it. It's a little buggy, um, but yeah, we have the bottom left hand corner. Let's just put it this way: there's 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 several options coming out. It's very exciting. And here's the thing: like, just think about the way that Lightning wallets and apps. I mean, you talk to let you talk to some of the wallet developers. I mean, some sort of coin join, probably more like a, a pay join, but that's going to be like native. Uh, in these apps in the next year or two, like, like when you, when you open and close and stuff like that, it's going to be amazing. And um, the, uh, the point here is that when you had uh, the signal people put the altcoin in their, their thing, their, their main argument uh, was that was, yeah, don't want to, don't want to revisit it too much, but their main argument was like, Oh, it's the lightning's not ready. Well, guess what? It's going to be ready in like a year for sure. I mean, there's already a nation state rolling out with it. So I just think that excuse is a bad one. And I think that rather than saying it's not ready, you should actually just work on helping make it ready. Yeah. And mobile uh, coin isn't fucking ready either. They're fucking full of shit. You just have to follow the incentives once again, right? Like they, they Moxie was in, involved with mobile coin and he had a very big incentive to get it integrated with signal that he was is his project as well. That he, even though it's open subject, he rules with a relatively iron fist. And it's not mm -hmm. a coincidence that mobile coin got put in there. I, I mean, I, I think it kind of just stalled, right? Like, I don't think, yeah. 
I haven't seen it integrated into Signal on my end, so I don't know what's going on there. I mean, I, I remember it was like pumped and dumped on them, so like that was probably a big yeah, wake-up Yeah, the price up went down like 10x on there. Um, it would behoove me, since we are having this topic, you know, Samurai has led the way in terms of pay names, which is also a yes. static uh, text string that you can use to pay people. Unfortunately... Uh, they're the only wallet that supports it, which is a major negative when it comes to accepting donations. I, I think uh, Jimmy Wales of Wikipedia mentioned this, um, and I've seen this as a pain point because Citadel Dispatch, you know, Rabbit Hole Recap has sponsors, including KYC sponsors, and that really kills me. I don't like that. I, I think it, I, it's, it's just it's follow the incentives, right? And as much as I make sure to not let it corrupt me, I want this show to be completely supported audience. Um, and I've been struggling to basically streamline the donation methods, right? Because Jimmy Wales mentioned this on Wikipedia, the more times, and he kind of used this as a cop out for not accepting Bitcoin, but I'll just forget that for a second because they're a donation based service. And the more options you have for people donating, the less likely they are to donate. But if you stick with a single option like PayNims or something, and the only people that can donate are samurai users you're also screwed from that point. So we're kind of stuck in a situation here where you're you're offering many different options to support. And as a result, you probably get less donations than you would otherwise. Um, and these are little nuances around, um, you know, audience supported work, community funded work uh, that that people on the receiving end don't really like to talk about. It's kind of like uh, it's a little bit of a dirty topic that no one really wants to discuss out in the open. Um, but it's something that's a major, major pain point in Bitcoin right now. Yeah, I mean, payments are really cool. We set we have one for HRF, it, but I mean, I'll just say it's like it's not super fast to set up. It takes a little bit of time, and there's like a fee you have to pay. And at the end of the day, it's it's a short term thing anyway, because at least for the purposes of what we're looking at, like it's got to be a lightning solution. Like it, it, these, you know, we just you have to know that fees are going to get like the dollar is going to get weaker. Bitcoin's going to get stronger fees are going to get 15, 20, 30, 40, $50. And the people that I'm working with need to be able to send five to 10. So it's just, it is what it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I have, I have major, this is a sore topic for me, Gladstein, because, <laughs> because I, we, we have right now we're sitting on an apparent Chinese uh, mining, you know, restrictions or ban or whatever you want to call it. The largest difficulty adjustment downward in history and the mempools keep clearing <laughs> and people keep paying one separate bite. And I expected the high fees already. Um, so, so I, I do have a lot yeah, of freaks keeping me in my fair. place. In terms yeah, but of we that. do. We saw $20 fees like two months ago. Like I know, right? <laughs> so I, I just look for now. It's awesome. Take the cheap fees while they're here, but you cannot possibly expect again. Remember, forget Bitcoin. The dollar is collapsing like over right. time. Like it's, it's not immediately collapsing, but well, you should measure fees in like, some kind of good or something. I don't know, but yeah, like yeah, purchasing could, you, power. But yeah, it'll it'll the 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 purchasing power requirement for getting block space should go up with adoption unless block space increases, right? Correct. Like that's a it's a it's a very simple logical thing. And and yeah. but but uh, it might take a little bit longer uh, no, than I great. expected. But it is again, we'll have payments and we'll have on chain solutions, and people will use that. But the Lightning solution will be like hugely helpful for for the community that I'm working with for sure. Yeah, we have ride or die freak Saturnity in the comments saying that we should measure fees in tomatoes. Like that's what I'm saying. Like you got to measure yeah. it in uh, in some kind of good that people need to survive. 
Um, I don't know if they need tomatoes, but but it it is what it is. Um, okay, so El Salvador. I I mean I think very fucking cool. I look forward to visiting there. I fucking love what the guys at Bitcoin Beach are doing. Um, I I I I do. You know, to me the way the way I look at these things as as you know a public Bitcoiner that has a platform um, is that it tends to be in Bitcoin land that you get better engagement if just everything is super rosy and bullish and has no trade-offs or no issues. Um, so I figure if I'm losing a bunch of my privacy, you know, chilling with the freaks twice a week, then my role should be to be a necessary contrarian or just someone that, you know, is constantly just on the lookout and just wants the freaks to be constantly on the lookout. And the way I do see it playing out, and maybe I'm just being because I, I listened to his his McCormick uh, show, mm-hmm. and he just he seems like what can you expect from a president besides that? Like that was like as like absolutely amazing. His grasp of Bitcoin. I mean, he was talking about Sats like he was thinking in Sats. Like I, I'm still trying to get some of the freaks to think in Sats, um, and this guy's just throwing Sats left and right like it's his standard already. Um, but yeah. I do think that there's going to be like a pain point period where people start getting their funds blocked or seized with Chivo wallet. And hopefully at that point, that will be the, the real that's the real incentive to go out and seek, you know, a different open source wallet that is more sovereign that gives you more totally. control over your money. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, as the large percentage of folks using this wallet are going to be, you know, in the remittance market, it's easy. They just have their family just start sending to the address that they control. So, I mean, right. You'll start seeing that. And just a note on him, on Bukele. Yeah, of course, he's very polished. He's like an Obama-Clinton-level politician. He's incredible. Um, but, you you know, again, and, you know, we've already gone through this before, but uh, let's be careful about him. I, 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 what's interesting is he does have an opportunity here. Basically, in Salvador, in, in, in El Salvador, the um, Constitution is such that he cannot run for president again. Um and he is probably going to try and, uh, you know, what, what we would call, you know, extra legally, uh, you know, change the constitution to, to run again. This has happened in many countries. Obviously, it happened in Bolivia, Venezuela, et cetera. It so in New York there, City. <laughs> New York City. But at the national level, um, it is something that people obviously are worried about. But he could choose a different path, which is what I'm rooting for. Like, what if he, like, actually agrees to, like, go when he's done and whatever he's the, he, he his career you know he moves on and he becomes like what if he become becomes like the international like kind of ambassador for bitcoin and like just goes around to different countries kind of like doing what like jimmy carter did or whatever for like humanitarian i could 100 percent see that like that would I be mean, great and, and he could be he, he has his statue if he plays his cards right he's got a statue right there next to satoshi he just can't fuck it up so let's see what happens you know well i mean yeah i mean a lot of people had statues that maybe were were lower down than Satoshi, but have been toppled because of their ego. But uh, I, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, look, I we were talking about incentives once again. I, I guess incentives is just the word of the day. Um, the there is this additional incentive for the first couple of rulers or presidents or leaders um, that move to a Bitcoin world um, that they become like international celebrities, right? Like no one knew who this guy was. No one was talking about El Salvador. And now all of a sudden it's on CNBC and all over the place. And people are listening to his speeches oh, and seeing his bills get passed and stuff. Yeah, he's an international celebrity now. So so that incentive is a strong 
uh, that's definitely a strong incentive on the positive side, at least for, you know, maybe the first 20 countries or something like that, right? Like the first movers, especially if they also personally are, you know, accumulating Bitcoin and their country is accumulating Bitcoin because, you know, they're going to put their country on the map for a long time and they're going to, you know, really squirrel away some generational wealth, right? Yeah. And then the last thing on that El Salvador piece is that, uh, again, geo, going up to the geopolitical level, um, we are kind of at this crossroads. Let's put Bitcoin to the side for a second, where we had like the Washington consensus, which is like, you know, the way that the United States and the World Bank and the IMF and to, the, to, to some extent, the EU uh, kind of control the world's flow of money and all the rules and how nations develop and which ones get access to nukes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, which ones were going to be held down, which ones were going to be forced to have structural reforms or austerity, et cetera. Now you have the rise of China. So you have like the kind of China kind of belt and road thing. And now you have like a third thing. So in the Cold War, you had the Americans and the Soviets and you had the non-aligned movement, right? So what if we have like the Nakamoto consensus, which is like all the Bitcoin parties, like you could conceivably start seeing parties in many countries where the, the only platform really is that they're a Bitcoin party. And then like people will vote for their wallet, just like they do in some countries, they'll vote for the party that has the lowest taxes. Like they'll vote for the party that's going to be most pro Bitcoin. Like that's a possibility here that we have, you know, the Washington consensus and we have the Nakamoto consensus. So I thought that would be kind of uh, kind of interesting to see pop up. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, I'm a kind of a single issue voter in that regard. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, that would not surprise me at all, especially if, uh, you know, especially if we're correct with the Bitcoin price, you know, Bitcoiners will have more money and uh, corruption runs a lot of this world. So uh, that naturally that naturally follows that uh, it'll, it'll go towards political power as well. Um, so El Salvador, positive news. I think Latin America is just going to be like this really great testing ground for Bitcoin. And I look forward to uh, hopefully seeing it blossom in the whole region. Um, I love the culture down there. It's, you know. Same time zone as us. It's very easy for me to travel down there. I know the language better than any other foreign language. Um, so selfishly, very happy about Latin America taking the helm here. And I, I look forward to seeing it expand. Um, obviously, I would love to see it expand in Africa. In Africa, you have this other aspect um, where maybe the French have had a lot of control and been holding their grip for a while. But you also have this creeping control coming in from China, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I feel like the U.S. has kind of just completely dropped the ball in that regard um, in terms of trying to stop that Chinese expansion there. It's almost like a, it's been a vacuum of European and, and American influence and the Chinese have kind of come in. Bitcoin could be, I mean, Bitcoin is the best tool to, to fight that Chinese, that Chinese in that region, right? Yeah, no, I mean, and it, there wouldn't be any other options if we lived in a world without Bitcoin, but we do. And and you're going to see people able to access this like collaborative, uh, peaceful, parallel monetary network, which is which is just kind of amazing. So, yeah, high level view on El Salvador, like historic, historic kind of moment, very kind of under it's, even 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 watching it live where it's being underestimated. Like you have to remember that very few newspapers covered it. Uh, you know, it's not like it was on the front page of the New York Times. So when we, in like 20, 30 years, when we go back and look at like Bitcoin history, we're going to have to pick some of these, uh, we have to dig for some of these events because the, the the world media was not exactly excited about it. Let's put it that way. Uh, you'll, just, you'll go listen to the Bitcoin podcasts. 
yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, credit to Peter for getting the first interview, you know, Bukele and not CNN. I mean, I thought that was pretty interesting. Well, so I mean, if, if I could have bet on that ahead of time, I give a lot of the Bitcoin builders shit about this, that I'm not, there's no easy way for me to bet with Bitcoin on these things yet. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, uh, hopefully the boys working on uh, discrete log contracts uh, will have a nice pretty UX for us uh, for the, in the near future. Um, but I would have bet on Peter getting that interview. Like he's a fucking hustler. I'm not nearly that surprised that he got it, but props to him for sure. Um, did you so, see he even, he took a picture, he took a picture with him with this little dispatch hat. He tried to get him to wear it. And the guy was like, I'm not wearing that hat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that stands for. <laughs> um, so, so, I mean, I we're so we're talking about Africa, Chinese influence, mm-hmm. um, China, you know, so Chinese, the supposedly China is kicking out miners right now. They're restricting mining, um, and the miners are moving their hash rate. And I, I guess they're they're moving their miners, they're moving their actual hardware out of the country. Allegedly, this is what we're being told. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the largest difficulty adjustment uh, downward in the history of Bitcoin. It appears that's that's what we're on uh, track for right now. Um, and that would be indicative of that kind of situation. Uh, it would also be indicative of a state-sponsored 51% attack. But um, where do you stand here in terms of China and Bitcoin and the next five years or something like that? Yeah. Well, I'll give two uh, interpretations. So one is based on uh, some conversations I've had with like some American miners who are obviously, as you've, as you've pointed out, very... They're very, um, yeah, you know, biased towards their own uh, opinions. But let you know, just looking at the numbers. Okay, so the hash rate peaked at 180 exahash per second uh, in early May, and now it's now it's at like 90. So we've lost half. Okay, so you know we can speculate, but generally speaking, you know, we we're seeing that the network lost about half of its hash rate from its peak just about five weeks ago. Um, and that from what we can understand, most of these miners are not getting arrested. A few of them actually did from what we can see. Um, but a lot of them are just like openly communicative on social media and they're just like, shit, we're going elsewhere. They were holding conferences to figure out where to go next. Um, and it's going to take them a long time to plug in because there's just not that much, uh, Isn't that weird to you? Which part? Oh, it's all weird to me, but which, which part? I mean, I, so I, I think, I think we got to go back to, oh, 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 that they're not getting arrested, like in a major crackdown or what? Yeah. It seems it, it doesn't, that, doesn't that seem weird? Like if you banned weed, you wouldn't just like let the weed dealers take their weed out of the country. Right. And tweet so about it. The guys I was talking to were saying that it, they were amazed that it looks so peaceful. Like, and maybe that's a weird thing to dive into, but it looks like that most of them are moving out peacefully. And they're actually getting their equipment out and they're shipping it. And, you know, there's been a lot of photos. I mean, those can be doctored, but a lot of photo video evidence of like, you know, empty mining, you know, husks at, at, at farms and, and, you know, footage of, of machines being moved. And uh, that seems to probably go to Malaysia, Kazakhstan, Russia, the U.S., Canada. Um, and I guess this, this, this particular narrative is that... Um, the Chinese, it wasn't the CCP, but the Chinese miners were this huge asset for Bitcoin. They protected it in its infancy. And then those, those individuals are going to go elsewhere. 
and 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 the argument that that some of these miners make is that this is so great because the those Chinese miners who were such a great resource for Bitcoin, they're just going to go elsewhere and it'll be better because they won't be under the CCP's rule anymore. So that's there. This is the one argument. Argument A is that this is a fantastic thing for Bitcoin. Um, that it's less about the drop off in, in hash rate and more about the decentralization now, where it was maybe even easier before for maybe a state to 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 get some sort of influence. Harder now. Um, well, I think, let me put it this way: ahead. if yeah. if 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 we success, if this difficulty adjustment goes down, mm-hmm. you know, largest difficulty ever, and then the hardware is actually moving out of China. And it mm-hmm. moves to all these different other jurisdictions, I, you know, and doesn't all come to America, hopefully. Um, and right. ideally is in smaller operations because this, a smaller operation is harder to detect and regulate and control than these large corporate operations. Um, and then the difficulty goes back up and we come back up to near levels. Um, I think we will be in the most bullish situation in Bitcoin's history, in terms of uh, the robustness of our of our mining infrastructure and not being in a single location, um, I don't think we've passed that threshold yet. We have to see what happens here. Totally, um, because there is a significant level of hash in China, or there was five five weeks ago. Um, and if you wanted to do a state level attack on Bitcoin. As the Chinese, basically the shitcoiner fud that we've heard all this years and all this time is you would basically pull a large portion of hash off the network um, and you would you wouldn't want people to think that was happening. So you would tell them that that's that's you know, there's hash is leaving the country and it's they just yeah. need to plug in <laughs> and you might even test it out with a couple of seasons of. Oh well, it's the rainy season, and don't worry about this hash rug pull. And we've gone down fourteen yeah. percent in difficulty. That's completely normal. Um, and then what you would do is instead of doing a traditional fifty-one percent attack. So, so a traditional fifty-one percent attack is the idea is I send a payment to you. I own the private keys. You settle up that thing. Maybe you send me tomatoes, you know, and then I have the tomatoes, and then I reverse the transaction, and I keep the Bitcoin, and I have the tomatoes. And obviously the tomatoes could be hundreds of millions of dollars if you're doing it to an exchange or something like that or a merchant. Um, Also with lightning, if you have a lightning counterparty, you can fuck with the lightning counterparty. Now a government state attack, you wouldn't necessarily, if you just wanted to kill Bitcoin, there's a lot of reasons the Chinese government would want to kill Bitcoin. I think everyone agrees on that. You know, they, they want their centralized digital yuan and they want it to be worldwide. They want everyone to use WePay. That would be the fucking best thing in the world. And so in, in that situation, what you would do to me, logically, is you would do this. And then after difficulty goes down, you would then just do a constant reorganization. So con- you would just keep basically forking the, the chain. It wouldn't even be a fork because it'd be valid consensus rules. Um, and you'd basically have a DDoS attack if, if you had over 51% of the hash. Um, and they 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 could you know they would do they would do this if if they wanted to do a massive reorgan really screw with us they could do that by just mining in the background on a different chain that we don't know about and then releasing all the blocks at once but they could also do an active attack where they're just constantly reorging the tip um, so that's kind of what I'm looking at in terms I think it's a very unlikely type of attack but if it was going to happen 
this would be the time for it to it happen. Would, it would, yeah, and this is yeah. what it would look like. It would look like this. Yeah. So, so the scenario B is that it is an attack by the Chinese government, and it, it looks perfectly like this. And and we'll see what happens. But obviously, as you say, I think that's very unlikely. I, look, I think what most people don't should realize is that all these great powers make huge mistakes in history. They all screw up. They do something terrible. And, you know, you could look at America's invasion of Iraq, Vietnam, Soviets in Afghanistan. You could look at Napoleon or Hitler trying to invade Russia. Like no matter how powerful they are, they always make a fatal mistake uh, or several, in fact. Um, and maybe this is just this blunder. Uh, I mean, you know, we'll see. Uh, but if it is a blunder and they aren't about to attack the network or in the process of doing so, this is tremendously bullish, right? Um, because again, it just removes their ability to sort of fuck with the network. Now the concern starts to be what's the US hash rate, right? So we were at like eight to 10% before the drop. So now people think we're at like maybe 20 to 25%. So we don't really want the US to get 50 either, right? So the question is, is there gonna be some kind of like G hash momentum or initiative among American miners if we get close where they'll go elsewhere? And I think some miners would do that and I think others wouldn't, but it would be interesting to see. I think another thing that people uh, uh, in this scenario A where it actually is a blunder and, and all, a lot of the mining is gonna come to the US, some of the miners I spoke to were basically saying that they, we shouldn't underestimate the Biden administration's like kind of like policies on energy stuff. Like look at, think about it this way. If they put like Marathon, like Marathon has, I think one of Marathon's biggest mines is like an uh, old coal plant or whatever. So if the Biden administration did a, a, a carbon tax, a moderate carbon tax of $50 per ton on some of these uh, companies, it would increase their energy cost by five cents per kilowatt hour, right? So that would move them from wherever they are now four or five cents to nine or 10 cents, which would make them completely, it would make, they, they couldn't make any money. So people are maybe underestimating the Biden administration's sort of green policies here as well. And maybe, maybe that ends up forcing American miners to go elsewhere. So we'll see what happens here, but there is a concern about American miners getting to 50% now. And yeah, we, have I mean, I to, think, we have to be realistic about that. I think there's, there's two things that, so, so there's short-term incentives and long-term incentives. So long-term, I think if we get through the turbulent times, which we have for the most part already, I would say, um, is, you know, I mean, specifically, like if, if we go back to the Segwit 2X days and we, if we go back to the Bcash days, I mean, not only was there a large portion of Chinese hash, but there was a single company that was controlling a large portion of the manufacturing and the hash, which was Bitmain, right? And mm -hmm. they fell from grace. So it is, it is, we are strictly in a better situation today. But totally. the, the long-term incentive is, is that governments will inherently, um, you know, make it regulatory, not cost, it will be cost effective to be distributed and be small operations because these large corporate miners, like you said, like Marathon and stuff, are going to end up having to pay higher costs and they're going to have to move around basically to try and keep profitability, right? Um, but that's more of a long-term thing um, that, that will take some time to, to play out. And right now we're in this kind of short-term situation. Um, so so if, if we, we, we do agree... That if the official story is correct mm -hmm. and China is basically pushing out a large amount of hash out of their jurisdiction mm -hmm. with no repercussions to the individual miners, 
by the way, this is a country that has strict capital controls and very little freedom. Right. Um, they're making a massive mistake, right? Uh-huh. This is if, if, if you want to control Bitcoin or attack Bitcoin, you need you want to you want to keep that hash not only in your, your borders, but you want to keep it regulated and, you know, you want all the operators tagged and bagged. You want them all known. You want them to know that you know where they live. You know what their assets are. You know who their family is. Um, and you want to keep them under your thumb. Um, so strictly speaking, from the Chinese perspective, Chinese government perspective, if the official story is correct, they are going to be, we're going to be talking about this for decades, right? Like this is going to be a massive, massive mistake yeah, on and their they're part. Probably and probably to, be the, yeah, probably, probably be the death of the, yeah, it'll probably be the death of the digital yuan. It's like this is. This is, you know, when 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 push comes to shove and we talk about Bitcoin becoming the next reserve currency in 10 years, mm-hmm. it's going to be. This was one of the pivotal moments that meant that it wasn't the digital yuan and instead it was Bitcoin. I mean, it sounds crazy, but it, it, yeah, it could be Xi Jinping's lasting legacy that he fucked this one up. Um, and, uh, you know, look, it's it, it could be something where it looked they end up realizing their mistake in a year or two and having to buy back in at a higher price like everybody else. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. But um, we're all going to be watching. I mean, that's the crazy part is you can just see this happen. I mean, you can just watch the hash rate drop. So uh, unlike other monetary systems where the uh, issues get hidden behind um, bureaucracy and uh, semantics and euphemisms, like this one's just pretty transparent. We can kind of see what's going on. Obviously, we can't see whether or not they're perpetrating some kind of attack. Um, but leaving aside the the kind of, let's say, fringe 3D chess thing, uh, and again, assuming, yeah, that, that, that they are making this mistake, it's super bullish, as you, as, as you say, for the network, for network security, for decentralization. Again, this the only concern here now is, is probably the US. And honestly, it's funny because our own politicians may, may, may may also prevent us from achieving that dominance, which is the crazy part. Um, in the same way that the CCP should have realized, if they haven't, that, that they really would benefit them, it would behoove them to have this control over it. Uh, American politicians should probably think about that as well, although I hope they don't, obviously. But like, let's just say if you're in their shoes, but they're going to shoot themselves in the foot because they're going to they're gonna go after the mining infrastructure, most likely, given all the signals we've seen. So, so we'll see. I mean, it might just be a bunch of global powers shooting themselves in the foot here. Well, I mean, like if the understanding, if if the understanding of the power of having, you know, a lot of large minor operations in your borders, but when, when that understanding really becomes prevalent or widespread, Ideally, most countries will not have a large enough amount of the hash to do anything with it. So it kind of ends up in like a, a standoff situation where they're all just trying to make sure no other countries have it, which is one of the long term incentives that should keep Bitcoin secure, or at least what I'm hoping will keep, you know, help keep Bitcoin secure. Right now, we're kind of in this special situation because of how Bitcoin mining developed to begin with. China already had a large amount of hash, yeah. right? So they're in this privileged situation, the Chinese government. Um, and they, they could really flex it if they wanted to. So, so, so we have people, we have freaks in the, in the comments saying, so they're asking, what are we watching for? Right? Like we try and keep this actionable, actual Bitcoin discussion. So first of all, 
if if they start doing and 61 or two made a point in here and i thought i was clear about this but yeah it's either going to be it would either be a deep reorg to just completely uh lose faith in the in in the, the chain settlement and just mm-hmm. create a lot, large amount of fud which you, you reorg a lot of blocks you do like a shadow you do a shadow chain and then you release them all at the same time and all of a sudden, like a bunch of exchanges are lose, like lost a shit ton of money and you, you just fuck around with everything. And you can even make those shadow blocks completely empty blocks. So the transactions never fucking happened. And 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 so all these exchanges are just completely underwater because, you know, people traded Bitcoin for shit coins and fiat and all this fucking shit. And there was just, you know, a massive reorganization. Or you can do this constant fuck around where you're just reorging the tip over and over again. Um and that is that would be like a DDoS attack. That would be a denial of service attack. The chain would just become basically unusable, um, unless we changed uh, in, unless we changed our al- algorithm, the SHA two fifty six algorithm, which is a basically it's it's a nuclear weapon. It's a it's a deterrent because if we changed it, um, we'd brick all miners. So if there's good miners and bad miners, and I'm doing this in air quotes. Um, we would make it so the good miners hardware also wouldn't work. So you only want to do that as like a last ditch thing. Um, and it's kind of just like a threat that we hold out there. So, but that's what we would have to do in that situation. Basically, we would have to do, a, we would have to brick all ASICs and we'd have to move to another algorithm. Um, ideally. And, you know, I've spent many days drinking with Bitcoiners talking about these different scenarios, but you'd, you'd want an algorithm that was, easy to make into ASICs and try and get back through the, you know, try and get back through the bootstrap period as quick as possible. Um, you know, or, or I, I even theorized, you know, sometimes that you could try, you can try and if there's, there's a couple other networks that already have ASICs and you could basically try and steal their algo. Um, but the problem is, you know, a lot of all this manufacturing is happening in Taiwan, which is in Chinese backdoor uh, backyard. And in China is where a lot of the assemblage and the shipping happens. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't really have if, if they 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 have the leg up if they want to start manufacturing on the new whatever the new algo is. So it'll be re- it would be really fucking messy. Um, let's assume that Matt is just being paranoid uncle mm-hmm. and none of this is going to happen. And we're going to be in this super bullish situation. Um, <laughs> in that situation, what we would want to see is we want to see this difficulty adjustment down. Um, and then the next period difficulty adjustment goes back up because how, how long does it take to ship these things or like the next two periods difficulty adjustment goes back up hash rate recovers and then we see self-reported hash rate which by the way we can't verify when these miners say they're mining whatever amount self-reported hash rate in america and kazakhstan and iceland and el salvador and all these different places that they're going um go up and maybe get pictures and videos and stuff from from those miners saying, "Look, we actually, in fact, bought all these miners, and maybe even plebs." You know, like I know, um, as far as I'm concerned, if if you're a freak and you're not trying to accumulate cheap miners right now, uh, you're short Bitcoin. So, like, I, you know, I'm trying to accumulate miners, and if they actually arrive at my door, then like I'll those three miners or whatever I got, like, will actually be there, right? Um, so, so that's kind of what we're looking for. This is going to be, you know, a month long process, a month and a half long process. If we get past that transitory phase, 
then we end up in like a super bullish green pastures type of situation. But until then, I think the safe assumption that Bitcoiners should be making, I'm not saying to sell your Bitcoin. What's the alternative? You know, like I'm I'm not selling shit. Um, is the safe assumption to be it should be just be skeptical here and be watching mm -hmm. and to not, you know, at least on the bare minimum, you should be waiting more confirmations before you do any kind of real settlement. Uh, when you have these big hash pulls, you should you should be waiting a longer period of time because, you know, the, the network hash is decreasing. Yeah. And from what I've seen, you know, people are debating whether or not we'll get back to that all time high of hash rate, uh, even by the end of this year. So I think people are expecting a longer than just like a month or two uh, process, you know, but yeah, if, if again, if there's not like some crazy attack happening in front of our eyes, then, uh, then this is, this is, uh, this is very bullish. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy to think about again, that like the mainstream media is just, again, in 20 years, when we look back, this will be a massive geopolitical moment, um, regardless of what's happening, whether it was an attack <laughs> on Bitcoin or whether they were stupid and they blundered, it'll be up right up there with any other event of the last 20 years. And, uh, and yet the media of the time were clueless. I can't really think of a, of a corollary. It's, it's kind of interesting. Um, well, maybe the media were always clueless and we just weren't, like tuned into that specific niche to realize. Yeah, just but like, you know, when big geopolitical events happen, they tend to be reported on. Uh, right. This one is just beyond their. I mean, it's just it's just beyond their understanding. Like they just they haven't really wrapped their mind around it. Like they don't even know that Bitcoin mining is a thing, except that it's they think it's bad for the environment. They don't understand the political aspect of it at all. Um, it's 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 kind of crazy, but it's all changing right in front of our eyes. So. Yeah, exciting! Exciting to be here to break down the uh, the arrival of the geopolitical era in Bitcoin. It's good. Time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good way of putting it. No matter what, uh, I mean, look, this is a super exciting shit. Like to me, this is very exciting. I think um, it is going to, you know, have massive geopolitical ramifications for, you know, maybe the next century, even um, maybe longer. But uh, yeah, I just uh, it's it's just it's just funny how so so one thing that I did want to mention that I meant to mention earlier, um, so I apologize at this point, freaks. Like we we were we did kind of go deep into the conversation, um, is that Bitcoin does have this difficulty adjustment, which is this idea that when hash leaves the network, um, after a target of two weeks, but it's 2016 blocks. So when hash leaves, it takes longer than two weeks. When hash gets added, it's shorter than two weeks. Um, the difficulty of how hard it is to mine Bitcoin changes uh, based on, you know, how much hardware was mining it, how powerful the hardware was mining it beforehand. And that's what the, this difficulty adjustment we talked about. And that's what makes sure that, you know, Bitcoin remains robust, even if, you know, you have hash leaving and adding to the network. Um, so you can't just have, you know, someone just load up the network with a shit ton of power and just take over the network, right? Because the difficulty will will adjust and take all the Bitcoin, you know, take all the advanced Bitcoin. Um, and that's what we call, that's what we call the difficulty adjustment. Uh, so there you go for that, freaks. It's a very powerful tool. And also one thing to mention is people say like, why is the difficulty adjustment 2016 blocks instead of like uh, 100 blocks? A lot of shit coins like to lower their difficulty adjustment. Um, is because if you have a smaller difficulty adjustment, it allows larger miners to play bigger games. So like we're talking about here um, with this scenario, like if this was a state-sponsored attack, really at this point in Bitcoin's history, only 
a state can pull off this kind of attack, a state like China that has a massive incentive to do it. Because what you're doing is you're basically forfeiting all this revenue for this long period of time. And in this case, it's really it's not just this difficulty period. You know, we've had multiple negative difficulty periods over the last uh, six weeks, seven weeks. So you're forfeiting a shit. You're forfeiting millions of dollars of revenue, um, hundred, probably hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue if you want to pull off this kind of attack. Uh, and that's a natural defense mechanism. It's just it's not a perfect mechanism, especially if you're you know, one of the most powerful countries in the world and you're trying to institute your global surveillance coin. And global surveillance money. Yeah. And generally, you know, assuming, again, this is not some like fringe attack, uh, 3D chess thing. It's funny because the Chinese government is probably seeing this as a crackdown. They're like, we got to crack down on this thing. And um, that's going to hurt them pretty badly in the end. So uh, it's kind of like this uh, Bitcoin's like this thing that if you fight it, it, it will cost you over time. You know, you see that yeah. at every level. You know what it is, Alex? The weird thing to me is, is like the Chinese government aren't idiots. If anything, they've proven themselves over the last decade to be very adept at controlling their populace and geopolitical maneuvers. They're very effective. I think they made the fools of the U.S. in many ways repeatedly. Um, and I, I, they don't even need to do like a... You know, they don't even need to do this attack that we just discussed. They could just seize the miners and not, you know, not let the hardware leave the country. Right. Like they, they're like this idea that that it's 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 not a weird move that they're just like, oh, you can just leave the country with your hardware and sell it and just keep that money for your f family or, you know, move your operation is just really to me, it just rings a bunch of alarm bells. To yeah, me, it just I, seems illogical. I, I I agree. I would say though that just just the the depth to which the knowledge, uh, photographs, uh, data, video footage, whatever has penetrated um, the space, this would have to be so well pulled off. And I, I don't know, like the Chinese government's good at like doing stuff with force, but they're not particularly good at um, hiding stuff. Like you know. I mean, like we all know about what's happening in Xinjiang and, you know, whatever you feel, however you feel about like the legacy of, of the coronavirus, like obviously they, they tried to hide that and that didn't like, obviously we f figured that out pretty fast. So I don't know, it would be so hard to like uh, manufacture all this like kind of fake news and manipulate like trusted people in the community. I mean, they, would literally, be, would just did that with, they literally just did that with COVID though. Uh, no, but the, no, but then we found out that, it, it existed. What I was pointing to is that when they tried to hide it and then like the world found out about it. Um, so like with this, it's different, right? It's like they would have had to manipulate all these people in the Bitcoin community uh, to convince them to say certain things and publish certain media. It, it would be a very impressive uh, like con. That's all I'm saying. I mean, but they convinced the Western world with multimedia basically to completely lock down their economies globally something that we never expected ever and they started the whole movement and then just kind of made it happen yeah that's true um i think it's like if you asked me if you asked me in february of last year if if the western governments would lock down their whole economies a la what china was doing in in wuhan right well i'd less less so than what they were doing in wuhan they were like welding people in and shit according to the videos we saw mm -hmm. um I would have said you were fucking crazy, right?
And then meanwhile, you have like our boy Stefan is like trying to escape Australia right now. Because <laughs> he, of the can't get out. he can't get out. No, no. I mean, fair, fair. Uh, I think it's a little, a little different in as much as like they got a lot of, if this is a con, they got a lot of people to bite. Fair. Uh, so we'll see. Um, I think it's, I agree. We have to be very skeptical both of, on both ends here, both of the, what's happening in El Salvador. Yeah. Like let's be skeptical and let's also be skeptical of what's happening in China, but regardless, it's a massive geopolitical moment. I, you know, we don't know which one will be more, have a bigger legacy in 10 years. Um, both will be huge. And it's crazy that they happen sort of simultaneously, kind of completely unrelated to one another. Um, but that's just kind of how Bitcoin works, man. So uh, hopefully uh, on the rosy side, if we're look, looking through the rose tinted glasses, we've got uh, nation state adoption of Bitcoin legal tender on the one hand uh, with a leader who's actually going to allow citizens to use uh, the official app in a way where they can pay external lightning invoices and receive from anywhere. And on the other hand, you have potentially um, the sort of effective decentralization potentially permanently of the Bitcoin mining infrastructure. So it could be a pretty big week in Bitcoin history <laughs> if, if all turns out well. Yeah, I mean, even if even if China attacks Bitcoin, um, they only can do it this one time. Right. Uh, so it, it'll be messy. It would be chaos. But uh, it'll be nice to kind of put behind us the, you know, the specter of China as a as an attack vector. Um, we, we do have uh, one freak mentioning like if they put back doors in the ASICs before shipping them out. Mm -hmm. Decent enough theory. You know, I did Bitmain had uh, uh, Bitmain had both covert ASIC boost where they had a special firmware version for themselves or enabling firmware for themselves that allowed them to mine better than their customers. Mm -hmm. um, they also had a kill switch that was discovered at one point. They never used it, but they had yeah, a remote kill that. switch that if you were running like an, an S9, I don't think S9, I think it was earlier than that. Like if you're running an S5 or an S3, um, they could just remotely knock it off through the internet, but they never used it. So yes, that's possible. Um, it's just another thing that you should consider. I mean, this is one of the reasons why why Marty, um, and I 100% agree with him here, is is saying that it's a, it's a, it's a national security issue for all all countries to have domestic manufacturing across the board, like everything we use, um, all of our computers, all our phones, you know, they're all fucking built over there. Uh, we, we need to build our own stuff. If, if you want to say that um, there's backdoors in ASICs, okay, there could be, um, but there could be backdoors in your phones too, or your computers or the fucking control systems on Boeing's or whatever. Um, so that's just a whole nother conversation. Um, so I wanted to keep this kind of tight. I think we've had a really great conversation so far, but before we leave, I kind of wanted to discuss, um, while I have you, I mean, mm -hmm. this is kind of your bread and butter, like the implications of something like, uh, a, a WeChat being very successful in Africa, right? Cause we already see it being extremely successful in China. And before all these COVID restrictions happened, when I was traveling abroad and stuff, I saw it in Europe in different like you'd be in Italy or something and you'd go into a store and they'd have the we the we pay QR code there because they knew the Chinese tourists were rich and they were coming in and they wanted to pay with it. Um, what are you looking at there in terms of concerns of, of the, the spread of that and, and what that means for the average person that kind of gets forced into using it? Yeah, so I think there's infrastructure and then there's like personal electronics and on the infrastructure piece, the Chinese government is uh very advanced in terms of both like uh resource extraction from africa and also setting up um 
uh, investments, making lo cheap loans, uh, basically like shackling these, these governments to them. Um, they've been very adept at that. There's a recent piece that's really stunning uh, that I'd recommend reading um, uh, in the New Yorker uh, about uh, rare earth mineral mining in the Congo. Uh, I'll just give you guys the, the title here. Um, it's called The Dark Side of Congo's Cobalt Rush. Uh, and it basically, you know, this reporter's there for a while interviewing all kinds of people and the Chinese have basically taken over. It's like they, they, they come in and they take uh, control over the territory and they have all the mines and they, 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 they have this like dominance over rare earth minerals. So at that level, they've been quite effective, but on the sort of like personal electronics monetary level, not very effective uh, uh, yet. Um, I know some even Bitcoiners in Africa are concerned because a lot of the phones are actually made by China, the phones that people use. So for example, Ethiopia is undergoing this massive thing where like over the next five to 10 years, uh, something like 60% of their population is going to uh, adopt a phone for the first time. And they're worried that like maybe the majority of those phones will be made by China, maybe even the absolute majority uh, or almost all of them. So there is a concern about the hardware, but as far as the money piece, uh, not, not happening yet. Like the yuan is like 2% accounts for like 2% of, uh, kind of reserve, na you know, national reserves, uh, trade, things like that, anywhere from two to 3% at the moment. Whereas the Euro is at like, uh, 10% or somewhere between 10 and 15%. And the U S is at like 60%, uh, or something like that. So their ability to penetrate uh, with the digital yuan, uh, forget the like DCEP or blockchain part of it or whatever, but just that, just the yuan generally, um, is just not been very effective so far. Uh, and you just have to just look around like no one's, it, it's, it's, it's not that dominant in, um, in, in major African like capitals yet. Um, so we'll see, uh, a lot of it is kind of a mess. Um, but I'm, it's certainly something to, to keep an eye out on. Uh, but this makes the Bitcoin project so important, you know, because even if it was being more successful, we'd at least have like this like alternative option. The right? rollout in China has been super effective though, right? Because yeah. Social I mean, credit oh, system well, and stuff. well, I mean, so some of that's also been a little overblown, um, but let's just put it this way. The Chinese government digitized society in a breathtaking fashion, like in 10 years, basically, like people went from like very little digital anything to like digital everything. So that was very effective. Uh, you know, as far as the social credit system, there is not like one credit score. There are many different systems in many different parts of China designed, designed by both municipal and um, corporate kind of entities. Uh, the general goal, I think, by the end of this year is that like the Chinese government wants everybody on like one kind of system. Uh, but as as some people have said, it's more like Kafka-esque than Orwellian right now. A lot of it is like broken, doesn't work, is in, is not interoperable. So it's it's uh, they're having a bear of a time with that. As far as the DCEP, like this kind of like uh, central bank digital currency, uh, that's being rolled out pretty aggressively in different pockets of China. Um, but it kind of remains to be seen how much more control that even gives the government because they're working with the corporate banks because they don't want to freak the corporate banks out. So they basically cut a deal with the corporate banks so that like the corporate banks help distribute the, the DCEP. Um, so, so, so we'll see. Um, I mean, again, let's be, let's keep, keep our eyes open here. Um, but I would, I would, I would be a little careful at, at 
assuming that they're going to be able to pull everything they want to pull off. Um, and maybe that, that, that aligns more with the scenario here that, that this was a huge strategic blunder to, to kick out the miners in China, assuming, you know, that they're not planning some devious attack that, that may be in line with, with some of the mistakes they've made recently as well. Yeah. I mean, I would love that. I mean, I, I think it's, it's execution is way different than try. Right. But I feel like they're definitely going to try to make it, uh, that that's their goal, right? That's the end goal. Is yeah, yeah, yeah. They want they, they want to challenge the dollar. Abro- the ultimate goal is the money, and they want the the, the decept to be like n- the native currency in all these developing countries. It's just there hasn't been a lot of free market acceptance of that. Like the free market does not value the yuan very much. Like again, right. like only two percent of all reserves globally are in, you know when a country goes to to make its savings portfolio, they're choosing dollars and euros and maybe some Swiss francs and Australian dollars, and they're choosing gold. And they're not choosing digital. They're not choosing the yuan. So, so we'll see. I mean, look, if that number gets starts creeping up to eight, ten percent, okay, then, 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 then we have a discussion here. But like, it's of my view that it's far more likely that Bitcoin starts to actually become a bigger chunk of international reserves and settlements over the next decade. But so we won't have like American children spending digital yuans through TikTok in five years or. Yeah, it seems unlikely. I think they're more likely to spend Bitcoin, but but uh, we could we could we could still fuck it up. We'll see. I feel like TikTok is like a good cautionary tale, right? Like they, that's like well, a major surveillance operation. Crazy. I'm sure a lot of freaks are watching the Euro Cup, and if you look at the advertisers, it's like all Chinese companies. <laughs> they, they're what? like they're totally culturally dominant. Yeah, I saw mo- multiple TikTok uh, sponsorships. I mean, I I assume the ones watching aren't here for the live stream because unfortunately. Uh, the Ukraine game went into uh, extra time and we started while it was an extra time. Um, but it was good to see uh, Ukraine pull that off. Um, yeah. I mean, TikTok advertisements are all over that shit. I saw ant chain advertisements, you know, China's all over that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, before I leave you, uh, before we leave the freaks um, and before, actually before I forget, Looking forward to participating in the B Word event with you and the Oslo Freedom Forum with you. Um, mm-hmm. Very excited about that. Um, but uh, the the topic of the day was WorldCoin. Um, this almost Orwellian mo- concept shitcoin that uh, Sam Altman of Y Combinator came up with that requires everyone to scan their irises, their eyes, um, to receive an airdrop, basically an eye-based KYC airdrop mechanism uh, to have a global currency that competes with Bitcoin. Uh, do you have any thoughts for the freaks on that? Well, yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> just it's just kind of the, just the ego required from this guy to, to name his project WorldCoin and to, to claim that it's going to help everybody in the world and to go so far down the rabbit hole on this to, to raise $25 million from famous people. I mean, I just would love to be a fly in the wall in his investment pitch to these people. And they've got like what a model of this like orb or whatever, like how fucking ridiculous is this? Um, no, but it's like, it's just a shame because this money should be, if this, if these people were effective altruists, like they claim to be, they would be figuring out how to help educate people and how to improve Bitcoin user UX and, and, and the, the network itself. Like that's what they'd be doing if they really cared about economic independence and uh, increasing, you know, living standards abroad, uh, or even in American communities that are that are like underbanked, like and and more vulnerable. Like they would be just working on Bitcoin. Instead, they let their ego go to them and they make their own stuff. 
and it's all going to be a huge freaking waste because no one is going to use this thing. So it's for any, if anything, it's just sad. Um, but it is crazy, yeah, to see like a, a quote unquote like very prominent Silicon Valley icon pushing a surveillance cryptocurrency. Uh, you know, that's supposed to be a UBI for the world. Like this idea that you'd you'd help people by like sucking up their personal data is exactly what Satoshi was trying to get away from. If you if you read that, if you read the white paper carefully on that piece, like like you know, we're just trying to get away from centralized control and the ability for us to be able to interact financially without having to disclose our whole ID stack is the key. And it's just funny that this guy's going in the total opposite direction. So just a remarkable, remarkable to see. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know. Um, I mean, I would, I would first start with that. I, you know, I, I do think that him and his investors legitimately do not understand Bitcoin. Um, I think totally. this is kind of proof of that. So it is bullish in the effect uh, that uh, we're front running them. They haven't really invested the amount of money that they should have into putting it into Bitcoin. Um, so it's nice that we're ahead of them on that. Um, I am unfortunately expecting that we're going to have more of these Orwellian schemes before people basically learn their lesson. Um, I think an important takeaway for the freaks is that this is why proof of work exists in the first place, distributed proof of work with this difficulty adjustment mechanism. It's a trust minimized way of distributing the supply based on how much work you actually do. Um, and all of these airdrop to the world schemes, um, I retweeted a tweet that I did in like 2018, like people have been talking about this shit forever. They always require a, a trusted third party who determines whether or not you've gotten your share of the airdrop yet um, versus, uh, you know, scamming it or, or fraudulent. And, and, and we've seen uh, half-assed attempts at this with Stellar, for instance, and Stellar did it through Keybase and they basically didn't have KYC. So what was happening was uh, scammers were just making tons of Keybase accounts and collecting the airdrop and then selling it for hard money. They were selling it for Bitcoin and then they were probably, a lot of them were probably going into US dollars afterwards. And Keybase had to put a kibosh on it. They like added like a kind of a KYC element. So all of these elements will always require some kind of KYC. In this case, you know, whether that's a national ID or DNA or something, in this case, they're relying on eye scans because a lot of these countries don't have, um, you know, they don't have very effective ID mechanisms. So it's it's like the, you know, the, the advanced KYC. It's like the next level of KYC. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this this scheme will fail. Uh, it is a money grab. They do have a pre-mine with investors. That's what the investors expect to make money off of this. That's why they invested. Um, and it is just straight Orwellian that you're like holding a carrot out and you're like, do your eye scan. Well, I was, I was doing an interview earlier today, I think with like Vox or something, they wanted to talk to me about it. And I, I almost, I basically told them, I, I wasn't sure if it was real. Like this could just be a stunt to like create some sort of publicity. It's like that ridiculous. I mean, it's that I don't absurd. think so, dude. I think- No, no I, I, I agree with you. I don't think it's a stunt, but it, it really sounds like one. Like if you were yeah. to do a stunt, this would be a good stunt. That's how right. absurd it is and how impossible it is to tell apart uh, it almost reads like fiction. It almost reads like an April Fool's joke. Exactly. Yeah. And right. that's why in the altcoin space, it's like impossible to tell the difference between like who's serious and, and, and who's literally just copy and pasting a joke. Like it's But there's serious money of so-called experts in the, totally. in the wider Bitcoin space, the cryptocurrency space that believe that proof of work is a problem that needs to be solved. And they're all in the same camp as this world coin shit, like all the proof of stakers and stuff that every 
everyone who thinks proof of stake is the way, anyone who supported the ICO model, stuff like that, like they're all against this idea of this distributed proof of work, this, you know, this trust minimized way of, of distributing, uh, distributing wealth based on how much work you put in verifiable work, work that anyone can verify themselves that actually work took place without any kind of KYC or anything like that. Right. So there's definitely a, there's definitely a disconnect there. There's definitely a, a, a non-understanding I think. And, uh, that's our advantage freaks. That's our, uh, this is, this is our alpha. We, uh, it, it might seem clear to us and, but the majority of the world is just completely have, they have no yeah, idea what's I mean, going on. Uh, Bitcoin's the real world coin. So just, you know, <laughs> Bitcoin's the real world. Focus coin. on the signal here. Um, Alex, this was great. I always enjoy having you on. Um, I always enjoy talking to you. Um, I want to remind the freaks that they can go support uh, HRF at hrf.com. Do you have dot .com too? I don't think we have dot .com. It was oh, pricey fuck. back way back when when we got the dot .org. I mean, hrf.org um, is great. Yeah, hrf.org is good, and we have the Twitter handles. So that's good too. And we have hrf.org slash dev fund, and that's where you can learn about all the no dev fund stuff. Com. We have coming later this year, um, for sure, in, in the dev fund space. So that'll be good to, to track. Awesome. Um, do you have any final thoughts for the freaks before we uh, close this up? Uh, no, just in general, uh, thank you. Uh, we'll be pumping out more content. I have my next piece coming out on 4th of July about uh, Bitcoin and the American idea. So that's going to be fun. Um, and then, um, you know, enjoy that on your 4th of July. And uh, yeah, if you are interested in joining us in person to meet some activists and help some people understand Bitcoin, you should go to oslofreedomforum.com and, and, and just apply. And uh, if you note that you're in this Bitcoin community, we'll, we'll get you in and uh, you'll get to see what's happening there in Miami. It's going to be pretty fun. So that'll be in October. But thanks for, uh, thanks for tuning in, folks, and we'll see you soon. Awesome. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, freaks, uh, especially the ride or die that are here in the live chat. Big shout out to all the freaks that support the show and keep it ad free, whether that's in our Sphinx tribe, um, streaming sats through Breeze and other podcast 2.0 apps. Um, using the tippin.me uh, or the LN URL that's here. All those links are at civildispatch.com. I'm aware that it is down right now. I do not know why. It happened right before we started broadcasting, so I will get on top of that as soon as we finish. Um, and I'll see you on Thursday for Rabbit Hole Recap. Cheers. Thanks, Alex. See ya. T-shirt said Virginia is for lovers Had a Bible in his left hand And a bottle in the other He said all you're really given Is the sunshine in your name We both started laughing When the sky started to rain Get along down the road We got a long, long way to go Scared to live, scared to die We ain't perfect, but we try
Wondering was she photoshopped or were her eyes really that lonely? Did she leave her hometown thinking she'd end up in L.A.? Did she break down in the desert and get stuck beside the highway? Get along, along down the road. Sometimes you got to get along, along down the road We got a long, long way to go Scared to live, scared to die We ain't perfect, but we try Get along while we can Always give love the upper hand Paint a wall, learn to dance Call your mom, buy a boat Drink a beer, sing a song Make a friend, can't we all get along? Love you, freaks. Missed you last week. I'll see you in two days. Stay humble and stack.